The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, and it can be found on page 929 in the Black Bibles. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole course, the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They, were embraced Paul, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonny and Carol, so much. And uh, good morning to you. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Clay Holland. I am the associate pastor here at Christ the King. And I'm going to lead us in prayer and then kind of orient us to, uh, to where we are this morning and why we landed randomly in uh, the middle of the book of Acts. So let's pray and uh, we'll look at God's word. Father, we are thankful for your grace and your care for your church. We're thankful that you give many gifts to your church, even though you are risen and ascended into heaven, uh, one of which are servant leaders to care for your flock. And so we pray um, that you would encourage us uh, by that this morning as we pay careful attention 
uh, by your grace and through the power of your spirit to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're in the middle of a little bit of a parenthesis, so to speak, in our uh, sermon series on Genesis. We're, getting, we're doing a sermon series right now from Genesis 1 through 12 that uh, John Trapp, our senior pastor, will finish up probably uh, mid-September. But right now here in the summer, we're taking several weeks to consider uh, the nature of leadership in the church. So Andres Zelaya preached a sermon from Ephesians 4 last Sunday, kind of introducing the topic. I am preaching a sermon on uh, elders this morning from Acts chapter 20, assigned to me by John Trapp, and he's going to get his payback because after this, all of our elders are going to resign. Um, so th- that'll, that'll show him. And uh, John next week is going to be back. He's going to preach about the new roles uh, that we're instituting this fall of, um, of, of elder advisors and deacon assistants. Then we have Ligon Duncan coming to preach, which is going to be awesome. I'm excited about that. And a couple weeks after that, Andres will be back to talk about the office of, uh, of deacon. And before I jump in, i just kind of give you a little heads up. I'm terrible at topical sermons. Um, Topics tend to just, I, I, they're too big, you know, for one sermon, and I tend to get myself in trouble. So I'm going to spend a lot of tr- uh, more time really on this topic from these words in, a, in, in Acts chapter 20, and also kind of pointing us back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we're talking about qualifications for an elder in the church and kind of the job description for an elder in the church. This is not going to be comprehensive because you could do a full biblical theological study about church leadership really, you know, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And we're not going to do that. We're going to kind of focus on these words. But I also want to offer some definitions because I don't want to assume any prior knowledge that when I say words like elder or session or overseer or anything or deacon or anything like that, that everybody's on the same page with respect to what I mean. So if this is new to you, I want you to kind of understand sort of what we mean as a church by these words. If this, if this is old hat to you, just bear with me for just a second. When I say the word elder, I am referring uh, to trained and elected servant leaders in the church whose primary roles are the shepherding care of the church, the spiritual care of the church, uh, and the governing of the church, leading in the church. So at Christ the King, we have 26 elders, uh, otherwise known in our denomination, the PCA, as ruling elders. And we have three ordained pastors, otherwise known in our denomination as teaching elders. The session is the name for the ruling elders, the senior pastor, and any associate pastors in a group. That's what the session is. And the session of Christ the King in our particular church has two components to it. All of the elders and all of the pastors have the primary responsibility for the spiritual care of the church. Here in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is using the metaphor of a shepherd to the sheep. Uh, So sometimes we will use the word shepherding to talk about the primary responsibility of a pastor or an elder at our church. Out of that larger group of elders, out of that larger session... There are six elders plus the senior pastor that comprise what we call the governance commission, 
which has delegated authority by the rest of the session to do the governance work of the church. And what we're talking about there are things like receiving and dismissing members, uh, approving or revising the budget, uh, receiving you know, reports on, uh, on stewardship, and, and those kinds of governance issues related to the church. So that's delegated authority from the rest of the session. The way that these elders are elected is by you. You, the congregation, recommends to the session people that you believe would be good shepherd leaders, servant leaders in the church. Uh, the governance commission, through its delegated authority of the rest of the session, vets those recommendations, trains potential candidates, and then ultimately nominates candidates to the congregation, and you, the congregation, votes on and elects elders in our church. Uh, we elect new elders as we have need for shepherding of the church. So some years we'll have one candidate, some years we'll have multiple candidates, some years we may have no candidates, depending um, on need. So I wanted to kind of give you that overview so you know kind of what I'm talking about, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning. What I want to focus on is why do we do this? Like why do these people exist and what are they supposed to do? Um, why does the church have these shepherd leaders? Some who work vocationally, the pastors of the church who are called to preach and teach God's word, uh, to administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, to care for the flock of God as a vocation. Uh, but there are others in our church who do this work of caring for God's flock avocationally. Vocationally, they're called to do lots of other things in the world. In our own church, we have school administrators and musicians and lawyers and entrepreneurs and financial services professionals and service industry professionals and retired folks. And they are variously called in the Greek New Testament episkopos, which can be translated as either bishop, but this passage in Acts chapter 20 translates it as overseer, or presbyteros, which is translated in this passage as the word elder. So this passage in Acts 20 gives us the most concise, not the only, but the most concise job description for an elder in the church. So this morning we're going to talk about the role of the elder in the church, the role of the elder in our church, and we're going to use this passage as a guide to try to answer three important questions. First, what are the elders of the church called to do? Second, why are the elders of the church called to do it? And third, how are the elders of the church empowered to carry out their call? So what are the elders called to do? Why are they called to do it? And how are they empowered to do it? Now let me set a little bit of context here since we're just jumping into the middle of the story here in the book of Acts. There's been 19 whole chapters before this. And by the way, the passage that comes right before this is the passage of Paul preaching and, um, and a guy falling out the window because he fell asleep and died. So it's okay. If you fall asleep, you're not going out the window this morning. It's okay. It's a safe space for that. So let me set a little context here. Um, Paul is on his way to the city of Jerusalem. He is not going to Jerusalem for vacation. 
He knows at this point that there is massive hostility on the part of the leadership uh, of, of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and they are seeking to arrest him and possibly and probably to try to put him to death. So he knows that at the very least once he gets to Jerusalem he is going to suffer in a variety of different ways. And so on his way to Jerusalem, he is stopping off and he is visiting various of the churches that he has previously preached at and places where he has planted churches and, uh, and they have um, founded their own elders and leaders of those churches. Um, and, and so this is the case when he comes to the city of Ephesus. But when he comes to Ephesus... Verse 17 tells us that he did not call the entire church to himself. He called the elders of the church to himself. He had important things to tell the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And you and I both know that last words are important. If you, have, if you believe that you're going to have one last conversation with your family, you're going to consider that conversation a lot. You're going to make that conversation count. You're, you're going to choose your words very carefully and that's what Paul does here and before I dive into that instruction I do want to offer you on the front end something to pray for I I, I find the words of verses 36 through 38 just really powerful because after all this is over and about and Paul's getting ready to leave uh, and get on a ship it says this and when he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. You know, one of the things that I have valued most personally, being on the pastoral staff of Christ the King in various roles and in various capacities now for 22 years, one of the reasons why... Uh, my family and I have stayed so long at this church. Uh, frankly, one of the reasons why I'm excited to be even in a new role right now and still serve at this church is because the pastors of Christ the King and the elders of Christ the King have always had this same relationship that Paul had with the Ephesian elders. Brothers in arms struggling together, laboring together in this work of ministry, doing this work of ministry uh, together. And while God does and always will call probably most of the pastors that serve at some point in the life of this church to move on to different calls and to do different things over the course of time. And we do rejoice in the gain that that is to the kingdom of God and the gain that is to other churches and other places. It's also always a sad thing that's accompanied by many embraces and weeping. I've reflected on that this week as I was reading this, this, this chapter because I know for a fact that it is not this way in, in every church. It's just not this way in every church. And it's not even this way in, in, in every church in our denomination. There are places where the relationship between the vocational shepherds or the pastors of the church and the avocational shepherds of the church, the elders of the church, is much more adversarial than it is cooperative. And the result of this is that the relationships in these churches begin to bear the marks 
of the world and not the marks that Paul is talking about here and other places in the Bible where there are power struggles or there are jockeying you know, for influence, where there's secrecy, where there's a lack of vulnerability, where there's a lack of trust. Rather than the marks of the Bible where we see the Apostle Paul and the elder of the church grabbing onto one another and weeping with one another because they have been through the fire together. Because they have labored together. Because they have suffered together. Because they have prayed together. And by God's grace, I want to tell you that such is the case here in this church. We're all humans. And so, I mean, we have human problems. But it is the case in this church. And making that continued unity and self-sacrificial relational dynamics between the pastors, the vocational shepherds, and the elders, the avocational shepherds, a matter of frequent prayer... It's one of the greatest things I think that you can do if you're a member of our church that, that you would pray that the Lord would protect that and, and continue that because of what comes next in the passage of Acts. So what are the elders of the church called to do? Well, to summarize this very briefly, it's in verse 28. The elders of the church are called to pay careful attention to pay careful attention. They're called to pay careful attention to two things. And the first one we're going to talk about right now. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Now these are the very first words of Paul's instruction to the Ephesian elders. They are primary with respect to the call of the elder. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, who is a young pastor, probably, by the way, when he writes that letter from prison, Timothy's the pastor of the, the church in Ephesus, strangely enough, he says exactly the same thing to Timothy. Keep close watch on yourself. The first call of the elder of the church is to abide in Christ, to grow as a follower of Jesus. And given Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians for those, the members of that church, to follow him as he follows Christ, abiding in Christ and going and growing in Christ as an example to the rest of the flock of God. Now, in just a second, I'm going to go through uh, Paul's qualifications for an elder as he uh, lists them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But to do that, I want you to think about this. Um, in his book, Blink, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell is the king of taking like seemingly random information and making something meaningful out of it. Uh, sometimes he's wrong. For my sake, I hope he might be wrong in this particular case, and you'll find out why. But in, in the book, Blink, Malcolm Adwell, uh, Gladwell cited research that said that for every inch of height for men between five feet, five inches tall and six feet tall, that equals an additional $800 in pay per year for people who do exactly the same job. I don't know why I would be sensitive about this. This is purely hypothetical, right? So that means that uh, a man who stands at least six feet tall earns $5,600 more than his five foot five inch cubicle neighbor. Over the course of 30 years, that is $168,000 in extra income solely due to the uncontrollable genetic factor of physical height. Now, this is suggestive of a lot of different things and it's suggestive in one respect of the way that we tend to choose our leaders in this 
world. And of course, the church is not immune to this. I mean, who doesn't want their pastor to be, you know, really, really, really ridiculously good looking and hip and and cool and all of those kinds of things. But there's only one problem with that. And it is this. Nowhere in the Bible is any of this sort of thing listed as a criteria for servant leadership in the church. When Paul lists criteria for an elder in the church, he focuses on very different things than our world and our culture tends to focus on when we are thinking about people who are qualified to lead. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. An elder in the church is called to be above reproach meaning that there should be nothing in an elder's life from a biblical standard standpoint that is reproachable, where you can say this part of your life is specifically contrary to God's teaching in his word. Uh, the, the elder is called to be the husband of one wife. Now, this does not mean that elders and church leaders must be married. The accurate translation of this verse is a man of one woman, uh, which, yes, in the context in which Paul wrote this to First Timothy meant that if you were going to be an elder in the church, you could not actually be married to two human women at the same time. But it doesn't only mean that. It really means that you are a one-woman man. It means that an elder is called to be fully devoted and faithful to his wife in sacrificial love. An elder is called to be sober-minded, meaning an elder of the church is not governed by emotional outbursts but is able to filter even stressful information and stressful things through the lens of the biblical worldview. An elder is called to be self-controlled. An elder is called to be respectable. And one of the things that Paul means by that is that even unbelievers, even outside of the community of the church, uh, with respect to the life of a servant leader of the church, uh, people respect that person. An elder is called to be hospitable. One who is known to open his own life and his home to other people, to treat them with dignity, to care for them. An elder is able to teach. Now this does not mean that an elder must be a gifted teacher or even that an elder must teach in the church. But it does mean that an elder is doctrinally sound enough that they can instruct the church in the truth of the Bible. An elder is called to be sober in the literal sense of the word. Meaning that in our own culture, that if an elder chooses to drink alcohol, it's in careful moderation and it would not affect the ability to care for the flock in an emergency, even if that emergency came as a phone call in the middle of the night. An elder is called to be gentle, and this is where we get super countercultural because gentleness is not really prized as a value of leadership in our culture right now. It's countercultural virtue if there ever was one. An elder is gentle because an elder knows that they are sinners saved by grace and are not better than any single person and struggle with all the same things that everybody else struggles with and so are gentle with people in their struggles. An elder is not quarrelsome. Oh dear, this one kind of also hurts me. Meaning you don't want your elders engaging in Twitter fights or arguments in the comments of Facebook. An elder's job is not to own anyone about anything on social media. It is to gently and patiently shepherd the flock of God. An elder is called to be not a lover of money. Now this does not mean that in God's providence an elder of the church or leader in the church can't have money. 
it only means that an elder should not love the pursuit of money above the pursuit of God and the pursuit of the good of his bride, which is the church. And finally, if an elder has a family, that elder should be known to pursue rearing children in the love of God and the love of God's bride, the church. It's a high standard. It's really an impossible standard, and I don't want anyone to panic. But what I do want you to see is this. In all of those qualifications that the Apostle Paul lists as the qualifications for servant leadership in the church, only two of those have anything to do with outward abilities or anything even that's, that's largely seen outwardly. That is the ability to teach and hospitality. And hospitality is really more of a disposition of the heart. It just manifests itself outwardly. Everything else that Paul lists in those words speaks to the heart of the elder, speaks to the character of the elder. And so if you're a member of Christ the King, this is instructive to you. What are you looking for in your leaders? Well, you're looking for leaders of high character, even if these are not the people that you would normally look to if you were electing a senator or promoting someone to be CEO of your company. It's a different standard of leadership, and it's one that we need to train our eyes to look for, actually. We need to train our eyes to look for because we're culturally conditioned to look for various other things um, in those who lead and those who serve. And this, of course, keeping an eye on ourselves, Paul goes on, and this leads to our second question, why is it necessary to pay careful attention? In the second part of verse 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention not only to themselves, but to the flock of which God has made you an overseer. The Spirit has made you an overseer. Now this, of course, is a metaphor for the church uh, of shepherds caring for sheep. The image comes from Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, Jesus did literally lay down his life for the sheep. By his blood, he ransomed people from every tribe, nation, and language under heaven. But it is also the call of the under-shepherds of God to die, to lay down our lives for the sake of others to protect the church from the threat of wolves. This is the metaphor that Paul is using here in Acts 20, both from outside of the church, but also from inside of the church. So the call of the, the, the shepherd is to protect the church from wolves from the outside. These are the ways in which the ethos of the world begins to creep over time into the life of the church. These are the places, to use a biblical phrase, where people even in the church begin to call good evil and to call evil good. It is to guard the truth of the scriptures no matter how countercultural those things are, no matter how unpopular they are. And it, may, and it is to refuse to co-opt the church or to make the church conform to the image of the world just for the sake of of short-term and temporary goals, like potentially numerical growth or something like that. But the shepherds of the church are also called to guard against wolves from the inside. Paul says, even among the elders, remember, he's talking to the elders of the church in Acts 20. He says, even from among you, ones will arise who will seek to lead the church astray and to devour the church. 
Now, in the original context, this is probably most easily understood in another letter that Paul writes, that to the church in Galatians, where he is uh, admonishing that church not to be misled by any who would add anything external to the gospel of grace, to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and requirement for membership in the community of God's people. In particular, teachers were coming into that, those places and they were telling the church that they had to keep all of the Jewish ceremonial law and if they were male, they had to submit themselves to the rite of circumcision in order to be saved and in order to be a part of that church. That's false teaching, Paul says. That's wolf-like teaching. So wolves from within may be that kind of false teaching. That teaching that says, you know what you really need? You need Jesus and. Jesus and. In our culture, it could be all kinds of things. It could be, you need Jesus and a particular social standing. You need Jesus and a particular uh, ethnicity. You need Jesus and a particular political identity. You need Jesus and particular methods of rearing children or educating children. All of those things are additions to the gospel. These are things that cause division in the church. And as Jesus says in John 17, division in the body of Christ over issues of personal preference is one of the great tools of the devil. The great wolf has to destroy the church. The shepherds of the church are called to guard the gospel from threats and wolves from without and from within. Now all this sounds really daunting, frankly a little scary. Actually a lot scary. So let's conclude with the how. How are the elders of the church empowered to carry out this dangerous calling? One beautiful word, grace. Grace, and I'm not making it up, it's actually in the passage. There's great comfort in verse 32. And now, Paul says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is not how perfectly shepherds keep watch over the sheep. It's not how outwardly perfect, you know, the elders of the church appear to be. It is God alone and God's grace alone that gives anyone, including the shepherds of the flock, an inheritance. Not a single pastor or elder in this church on our own merit is qualified to do the work of shepherding. Not a one of us, but God does his work of grace, which qualifies, sanctifies, strengthens and upholds the work of shepherding in God's church. I'm going to just conclude then uh, with a couple of implications. First, for the elders and the pastors of Christ the King, and I'm the only pastor here this morning, so this is for, for me. Uh, I'm going to make them listen to it, though. The elders and pastors. Because I actually want us all, hear me right here, but I actually want us all to squirm just a little bit. In, in sitting in these passages we all need to read these passages if you're an elder or a pastor y'all need to read this kind of passage and go ew well yeah you know we shouldn't be too comfortable sitting in this 
We really shouldn't. We shouldn't be too comfortable. We shouldn't be too lackadaisical. We should not be content to settle into ministry of just being a rhythm of rote weekly tasks that we do or an elder being the equivalent to being on the board of any other nonprofit organization. So we read these words from Acts 20 as we read these words from 1 Timothy 3, we are sit again in the fact that it's weightier than that. These are weightier matters that we are called to. And it's legitimate, actually even important, to take an inventory of your life uh, on regular occasions using 1 Timothy chapter 3 as a guide not to, not to be overly daunted and not to be overly like, you know, introspective in a way that is unhealthy, but in a way to examine where your life is with respect to the standards that the Lord you know, talks about with respect to those who are leadership and to make particular things matters of prayer. Even things to share with your friends of saying, this is something I struggle with and I want to grow in these things. For the congregation, my encouragement to you is, is twofold. First, in order to determine who will be good and faithful shepherds of the church in the role of elder, you can take a look at 1 Timothy 3 and you can take a look at Acts chapter 20 and you can ask yourself the question, who's already doing this? Who's already doing that? Now, you might have to look. Actually, you're probably going to actually have to go and look because the people that are already doing this are not doing this for adulation. They're not doing this outwardly. They're not doing these things to be seen by everybody. They're, they're doing it in places like a, you know, a, a second-grade classroom you know, or they're doing it upstairs uh, on Sunday night with our student ministry, or they're the ones who, uh, when they're smoking, when they're taking an entire day to smoke a brisket, they're the ones who put another one on, so they'll have an extra one to give away to somebody if they may need it. These people are already doing that work of shepherding, and, and, and we're looking for the people that are already doing that. And the last thing I would say is this, pray hard for the pastor's and the elders of the church. John Trapp put it very well back in June during the ordination service for our new officers when he talked about the symbolic vesting of ordination being a funeral shroud and not party clothes. Putting a funeral shroud on a person and not party clothes for a person. Why? Because in this call to shepherd the flock of God, you are being called to lay down your life. You're called to give up your life for the sake of other people. And that requires much prayer on everyone's part because there's nowhere that the evil one likes to attack more than in the lives of those who are called to serve and to lead in their physical bodies, um, in their marriages, in their vocational lives, their spiritual lives, Pray for God's flock and use these words of Paul. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to give you an inheritance um, among the saints. It is God's grace that is his work in his church and in his people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace because apart from it, we would be irrevocably lost. Um, any and all of us, and particularly those who serve. So we pray, Father, that you would guard the lives of the servant leaders of Christ the King, that you would shape us more and more into the image of Christ and less and less into the image of this world. 
And Father, that you would be present in all things, the rock and the cornerstone, the only head of the church to lead and to guide. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.